Ortholog Forum is a scheduled discussion December 15th, year 2005. The topic is ontology applications and implementations. Uh, the, the event is organized and co-moderated by uh, Dwayne Nichol from Adobe Systems and Kurt Conrad from the SageBrush Group and also a co-convener of the Ontolog Forum. All yours, Dwayne. Yeah, you know, Peter, I really appreciate that because I barely even have to introduce myself by the time you're done with me. It, yeah, go ahead. Great. <laughs> um, so, so, the, so the opening of this, uh, I, I'm just looking at the agenda, I guess, um, I'll, I'll say a few words first, and then Kurt uh, can, can say a few words, and we can just go probably right into the sessions. Blaine, you want to go ahead and run a cycle of introductions first? Sure, okay. Um, so let's, uh, if everyone's on the uh, the wiki page, we'll just go down the list uh, as per the, uh, the attendees. <laughs> Whelan Solomon. Hi, good morning. My name is Marty Whelan Solomon. 
I'm the corporate nomenclature taxonomist. Easy for me to say for the Walt Disney Company, and this is my first um, Ontolog Forum, uh, I guess, involvement. Uh, thank you very much, and I apologize for mispronouncing your name. Uh, it's Zach Roth. Uh, I'm an information architect with Unicorn Solutions, which is in the business of semantic information management. I'm currently engaged in large-scale bioinformatics project, and you'll hear about it a little bit. Thank you. Adrian, please. Uh, hi, I'm Adrian Walker. Um, I'm uh, with a company called Reengineering. Um, what we do is we try to do three kinds of semantics, and uh, we'll be talking more about that uh, um, uh, later in the session today. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Susie Stevens, please. Mills Davis. Hi, this is uh, Susie Stevens. I'm a Principal Product Manager for Life Sciences at Oracle, which means that my job is to enhance Oracle's database, application server, and collaboration suite products to make them more suited to the requirements of people in the life sciences industry. And um, as part of my work, um, I was heavily involved in um, Oracle implementing an RDF uh, data model in the latest release of the database. Um, and uh, um, I'm heavily involved in semantic web activities at Oracle and um, Oracle's contact point with W3C for, for the semantic web. Wow, thank you very much. Uh, Bob Smith. Uh, Bob, you may be on mute. Yeah, Bob's actually driving in his car on his way back home, so he may be popping in and out based on cell range. Okay, I'll, I'll just quickly uh, introduce Bob. Bob is a professor emeritus at California State University and has been very actively involved in this uh, group over the past uh, couple of years. Uh, Gary Baird-Cross. Hello. Uh, I'm with uh, EMNI, which stands for Engineering Management Integration. I'm a cognitive psychologist, and I've been involved in uh, knowledge modeling for about 20 years or so. Um, EMNI serves as a, um, a fare broker for a number of uh, government agencies. Thank you. And Kathy Ellis? Uh, my name is Kathy Ellis, and I work at Eli Lilly and Company, and I build taxonomies and other types of ontologies here. This is my first time with the group. Oh, great to have you, Kathy. Uh, and Mills Davis, who has just joined us, could you introduce yourself, please, briefly? Hi, Mills Davis uh, with Top Quadrant and Project 10X. Um, I'm basically uh, doing a lot of work in the area of researching semantic technologies fit and their business value, uh, you know, collecting case studies and, and whatnot. And uh, I mean, one could go on, but that's my introduction. Thank you very much. Um, so that's all the introductions, and it, it sounds like we've got a lot of collective knowledge in the, uh, the group today. Um, the session that we had uh, originally envisioned is really uh, going to be structured around a series of smaller presentations on implementations based on ontology and semantics, followed by informal discussion afterwards. Uh, this is a kind of first test session, and uh, Kurt has put an incredible amount of work into uh, getting this uh, up and running and uh, finding the participants for it. And uh, Peter certainly presented a, uh, a lot of information to help us out in organizing this and, uh, and being very involved with the whole, whole uh, subject. Uh, first, we're going to hear from Leo uh, Obst. Oh, excuse me. Sorry, just before Leo uh, begins, I, I jumped in, but um, someone was just, just talking, and I didn't want to 
run over them. <laughs> and I, I thought, <laughs> I'm just going to do that right now. <laughs> just, I, I, okay. uh, my name's Connor Shanky from uh, Vancouver, Canada, Visual Knowledge. And uh, we're a 15-year-old company. We do ontology life cycle uh, management. Wow. So you're in my backyard. I'm in Vancouver, too. Yeah, Pat, Pat Cassidy is online also, lighter ontologist. Okay. Thank you for introducing yourself. I'll uh, let uh, Peter uh, collect the uh, the information and uh, put it up uh, on the uh, the wiki page. Um, before we start, uh, the, the the schedule will be uh, first to have Leo Obst, uh, then uh, a presentation by Itzhak Roth, and uh, then Adrian Walker as the third and final one, and uh, then a further discussion moderated by Kurt. Um, before we start with uh, the first presentation, Kurt, would you like to say any further words? I think I had myself on mute. I recommend oh, yes. everybody go on mute if you're not talking. Yeah, uh, it cuts down the background noise quite a bit. I, I think the only thing is just to kind of repeat. Um, Denise Bedford was on the program, but she told me yesterday she has pneumonia, and I told her that she should get better instead of worrying about us. So that's why uh, Denise isn't on the program right now. Okay. That's all I got. Thank you, Kurt. Um, so let's uh, start. Uh, Leo, uh, you now have the floor. And uh, if you can explain to uh, the people on the line how they can uh, get a copy of your uh, slides, that would be good. Uh, yes. Um, uh, people have access to the uh, wiki? Yes. Okay. Uh, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm actually I'm going to have to... Uh, uh, page through my own uh, version of this, so I'll let you know which slides um, uh, is which when I'm at on them, and uh, and then just page uh, uh, your own copy uh, or uh, you know follow along with the uh, uh, the wiki copy. Yeah. Uh, uh, first of all, it's uh, uh, Leo Oberst, so yeah. the pronunciation is Oberst. Okay, Leo, one, one moment, maybe uh, Peter Yim here, I, I'll just jump in. For those who have VNC access, uh, Leo's slides will be pasted on the v shared screen server, the VNC server. For those who are behind firewalls or have difficulty with the VNC, the shared screen access, if you go underneath the agenda, uh, which is like three quarters of the page, uh, two thirds of the page down. Uh, under items four, five, and six, uh, there there's a link underneath each of the uh, presenters' title uh, uh, titles. If you click on that link, uh, the the PowerPoint should jump up. I mean, if you have PowerPoint or Open Office or anyone. Uh,
uh, notions first. So if you will look at uh, slide four, uh, which uh, basically has the heading uh, Dimensions of Interoperability and Integration. So this is, uh, uh, you know, my view, uh, and of course there's uh, multiple views on what interoperability is and what integration is. Um, we can talk about that, but uh, in uh, this short form, we won't get very far uh, in uh, elaborating definitions. So what I'd like to do is just uh, uh, explain what this uh, is trying to show. Uh, first of all, it's an interoperability scale at the bottom. Uh, if you will, it's a, a continuum from zero to 100%. And obviously, we never uh, are. Uh, we may be at zero, but we will hardly ever be at 100%. Uh, if you want to look at the kinds of integration we're talking about, uh, I identify that as syntactic, structural, and semantic. Uh, with these step levels, if you will, uh, from data to object to component to application to system to enterprise and to community. You can view the, the largest community is, of course, the, the world. Um, what this uh, color coding tries to show is that uh, at lower levels, the focus is on more of syntactic interoperability um, or integration. Uh, uh, there's a structural component, um, but as you rise uh, to the community level, the semantic interoperability dimension uh, ultimately increases, and it becomes uh, more important, uh, in fact, than uh, the other two. Uh, now, uh, I'd like to uh, just jump back uh, to the more complicated slide. Um, which is slide two, now that uh, uh, you, you thought maybe this would be fairly simple, um, I lose this, uh, uh, this very dense slide on you. But what I'd like to do is unpack this. Uh, before I unpack it, uh, what I'd like to uh, just uh, mention is kind of a definition, if you will, of semantic interoperability integration. Um, the, this is not on that slide, uh, but basically the way I view uh, uh, interoperating is it means to participate in a common purpose. So uh, ultimately it's an operation that sets the context, uh, and uh, the reason or purpose is uh, ultimately the intention, uh, the, the end to which, you, uh, to which the activity is directed. So when we focus on uh, semantics in particular, uh, we can view semantics as uh, fundamentally interpretation um, within a particular context and typically from a particular point of view. But when we talk about uh, interoperability integration and especially semantic, we're, we, we really mean that it's fundamentally driven by uh, communication of, the pur of purpose. Uh, we talk about systems and participants, uh, service obligations and responsibilities, and these will typically be uh, explicitly contracted. Uh, when I unpack this slide, uh, what this slide, uh, tightness of coupling and semantic explicitness, slide two, is trying to uh, show is that in the lower left, we've gone from um, a uh, very tightly coupled 
uh, notion of systems in uh, software engineering and information technology. Uh, when computing began, you know, roughly 50, 60 years ago, um, to the upper right, increasingly, uh, which is uh, where we have uh, loosely coupled systems. And what this, uh, the general uh, drift of this picture is trying to show is that when we've evolved from uh, tightly coupled to loosely coupled systems, um, the degree of semantic explicitness has to increase. Now, this is not something that's necessarily been chosen uh, explicitly by us uh, as information technologists. It's been forced on us. Uh, and the reason uh, this has been forced on us is the evolution to uh, more loosely coupled systems, if you will, uh, is that uh, we have to deal with heterogeneity, uh, differences of various kinds. Uh, ultimately, in, um, for, for our purposes in this forum, it'll be uh, semantic differences. But um, uh, originally, it was other kinds of differences. So on the, I, I, div I divide this into a red font area, which is the data area and a blue font area, which is the application area, the lower uh, area there. Uh, in the past, right, uh, in a very tightly coupled system, and of course we still have some of those, they haven't necessarily uh, gone away, um, you may be uh, working in the same address space on the uh, data side, meaning uh, ultimately you're working uh, maybe as a sub-procedure uh, in a larger program where the data structures are defined and uh, folks use those and they're well-defined and local. Uh, you, you're probably working in the same process space. In other words, um, the processes are, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the uh, processes used by the application are all in the same space. Um, uh, that's, uh, that's an ideal that hardly uh, ever is realized anymore, but we've evolved towards um, having to deal with uh, increased heterogeneity by relaxing some of these constraints, right? So on the data side, uh, uh, formerly uh, we carved out databases as opposed to local data structures. So we say that... Uh, we're going to abstract out the data insofar as we can and uh, make that available to a number of uh, applications or systems. Uh, we may use the same DBMS. Um, uh, we're maybe using the same programming language, let's say, uh, you know, Fortran or uh, Algol or an earlier language. But we keep dealing with increasing heterogeneity. So uh, we no longer can count on uh, uh, working on the same CPU. My program calls your program, um, but uh, uh, perhaps we're on a cluster. Um, uh, we can't deal with uh, necessarily the same operating system. You're on Macintosh, I'm on Unix. Uh, we develop these uh, uh, constructs, if you will, as we go from lower left to upper right to deal with differences, 
the heterogeneity that's ultimately forced on us. Now, why is it forced on us? Well, over on the right in the green font, uh, starting at the bottom, right, uh, in the good old days, we could just deal with uh, one system, perhaps, uh, a small set of developers, a, a database or two. Um, we could all nod our heads, you know, as a development team saying, you know, uh, here is this API. I'm going to pass you this argument. Uh, here is what it means. Uh, you're going to pass me back this other argument, and this is what we agree it means. Uh, Leo, you've got about two minutes left. Oh, okay, sure. This is uh, very, uh, I'll just continue, yeah. So, um, so we can nod our heads with and agree on implicit semantics. Um, but as we've evolved to systems of systems and then enterprise level, community level, internet level, we can't all shake our, nod our heads across the internet and say, yeah, this is what we mean. So we need to develop on the data and application side these constructs that deal with uh, initially syntactic, um, uh, you know, uh, lower level network, syntactic, structural, and ultimately semantic heterogeneity. Uh, so we've evolved to data warehouses, data marts, uh, ontologies, uh, the semantic web emergence on the data side, um, semantic mappings, and even modal policies on the application side. We have to deal with uh, local area nets, wide area nets, you know, middleware, interior architectures, web services, service-oriented architectures, all the way up to agent programming, uh, semantic brokers. Basically, constructs that help us deal with uh, the heterogeneity uh, and the distances between uh, interoperating systems. What all this uh, implies is that as we've gone through this uh, evolution, we've been forced to have more and more machine-interpreted explicit semantics. Um, ultimately, um, I'll just jump to slide five uh, and just state that what we'll do uh, in the session in January is kind of try to connect the types of models um, that we use uh, to deal with degrees of semantics, including uh, the emergence of uh, some languages for syntactic interoperability, structural interoperability, and now uh, semantic interoperability. Uh, and with that, I'll just conclude. Thank you very much, Leo. Um, certainly, your observations are shared by many in the, uh, the SOARMTC have noted that the more loosely coupled you are, the uh, more emphasis there is on the uh, uh, topic of semantics, you know, explaining what the service does to the multiple potential consumers of it. Um, so for the next five minutes, we'd like to quickly open it up for some uh, follow-up questions from the uh, those of on the uh, forum call. Uh, you may also use the uh, chat room to, if you click on the hand icon, if you wish to queue yourself up to ask uh, Leo a question. The floor is open for questions. Hi, Leo. Adrian Walker. I'll, I'll jump in with a question on, on your slide five, if I may, please. Sure. Um, the, the, there's a sort of a feeling that um, uh, the semantic web is, is about to be sort of jump-started, perhaps by uh, biological computing, perhaps by other uh, applications. Um, 
as that begins to happen in the very sort of distributed, loosely coupled environment that you've uh, uh, outlined, um, the, there's sort of a question of why should I trust anything that this immensely complex uh, system of software does, mm-hmm. um, and, and not in the sense of um, a human did something that uh, was unethical when they programmed it, but just in the sense that a human might have made a mistake somewhere along the line. And that what I'm getting out of this thing that is using several ontologies all over the world to advise me to buy stock in Enron mm-hmm. um, might uh, might be wrong. Um, can you address that at all, or is that uh, Yes, definitely. Um, uh, the semantic web has to address uh, questions of uh, trust, um, and trust is, as you suggest, not just a, a, a simple thing such as, you know, it's malicious. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it does have to address that. So at a certain point, right, we expect that we're going to have, in fact, uh, if you will, Trojan horse ontologies, right? Ones that are, in fact, incorrect for a, a specific reason to interject error. Um, so, um, as these islands, if you will, of semantics um, arise on the semantic web, right, you're going to have to have mechanisms for dealing with, uh, if you will, certification uh, of correctness. Uh, insofar as that can be uh, ascertained, uh, you know, uh, formally, uh, uh, then formal properties should be observed, right? So if we know that uh, it's consistent and uh, we have uh, three reasoners and which are all reputable saying that, in fact, it's certified to be consistent, um, that's one level, right? Uh, another level is... Uh, uh, inspectability and explainability, right? So if you get a conclusion uh, from uh, your software uh, that uses these three ontologies and it has, uh, uh, if you will, figured out that you should buy this uh, share of stock at this price uh, from this uh, person over here, you, you have to be able to, um, uh, on, uh, or the system has to be able to be inspected or requested uh, by you to give an explanation for how it derived that answer. Uh, we Can I jump in there? Um, that, that I, I agree 100%, but what I don't see, Leo, um, is anything so far that I know about that would explain an answer like that at the business level. Um, what I see is that it could output a bunch of KIF or a bunch of OWL, oh, yes, yes. which is so, I mean, obviously, one of the things that's uh, necessary, like uh, any any application, is an interface that uh, deals uh, reasonably with your user, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're an expert logician, right, it can feed back uh, to you the logical language, whether it's OWL or KIF or common logic. Uh, but if you're an end user, a business user, right, you're not going to know that. So what you'll really need is an application, again, with a component of trust um, or service, or service, let's say, that's the, the typical paradigm now, a service you trust that has an interface that uh, takes that logical expression and feeds it back to you in a natural language uh, expression, right, that you can understand. Yeah, um, at this point, I think it's uh, the five minutes for the discussion on the first part are over, and I'll just remind everyone that we do have 
45 minutes after the third and final uh, presentation today to also have an open uh, discussion between the panelists and the participants, and that will be moderated by Kurt. Um, I'd like to move on to keep on schedule and uh, invite the next speaker up, uh, Dr. Itzhak Roth, and uh, his presentation is on semantic technologies in bioinformatics, and you may open that. And uh, Dr. Roth, may I please ask you to uh, cue us to the uh, slides that you are on as you're speaking? And I know um, you over Yeah, I'm, I'm offline. I'm looking at my own copy here, so someone will have to page through. Okay. Right. But, uh, the, the shared screen server will be pacing through as you prompt us to advance the slides, too. Okay. Uh, first of all, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, currently uh, I'm involved in a large-scale bioinformatics project. Uh, for those of you who are familiar a little bit with this uh, stuff, bioinformatics information, I'm in slide two. Uh, it's a challenging uh, business. Uh, bioinformatics is very rich. Uh, dealing with large amounts of data, and uh, very, uh, there are many, many databases out there. In a survey of uh, bi biological databases that was published last year, uh, there were 750-some databases listed. And this is impressive, but I think what's more impressive is that between this survey and the survey before that, there was a growth of about 150 databases. Uh, <clears throat> the problem or the issue with these databases is that every single database is specializing in certain aspects of uh, bioscience, biological information. I mean, there are databases that uh, <coughs> specialize in genes or certain aspects of genes behavior, others uh, with the proteins, the protein interaction, populations, etc. And all these databases are normally accessible or not all, but many of them are accessible via the web uh, and through a menu of uh, selection and uh, setting parameters, many users can go and, and extract a data sets from a particular database. Uh, the problem is that this data set uh, gives a narrow picture of a very particular field, a very particular aspect. Uh, so the the purpose of this project that we are involved in is really to bring under one umbrella a multiple such resources so that researchers can get a broader picture and, and uh, explore a certain phenomena or certain hypotheses from different perspectives and how things are interacting or are related to one another. Um, <coughs> so, a uh, what do we bring to this uh, big and challenging project is semantics. And how semantics will, will be used, uh, let's go first about what Unicorn is about. Uh, and if we go to slide three, we see the footprint of the Unicorn semantic engine. Uh, on the left uh, is really the, the engine on the Unicorn side. And what, what we have in the center is what we call common one language, which is an ontological model. Uh, this is an ontological model of the domain. Uh, it is uh, <coughs> expressive as our, actually the system is our compliant. We read our ontologies or we can create them ourselves. 
And uh, <coughs> then we, we have, at the bottom, uh, we have all kind of uh, data sources, databases, data warehouses, uh, XML documents, COBOL, playbooks or whatever they're called, anything that uh, we care to to uh, document and to relate to the semantics in the model. And then <coughs> we we do mapping that allows us to identify uh, elements, data elements, in any of the data sources using the vocabulary that we express in the ontology. Uh, now, why why do we want all this? Uh, as I said, <coughs> we have very rich uh, domain of bioinformatics. And uh, a lot of people are struggling uh, as we speak on creating vocabularies to describe this domain, and there are many efforts around the world to do this. Um, but there are also many databases, and, and researchers want to break this bind to get only the data that are, they are getting by the structured queries that are unique, uh, that um, the websites provide to them. And if someone wants to, one morning has an idea of how certain gene reacts with certain other phenomena, which may not be something that he can find in structure, in a structured query that is provided to him by the by the a website, then uh, we have the problem. And to solve this problem, we are providing a semantic front end using the vocabulary into the databases. And what I mean by that... Now. Sorry? Five minutes. Sorry. Five minutes. Five minutes left or five minutes past? Both. All <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> I was thinking 15. Okay, so what... Uh, we move on to the next slide. Sorry, I'm and lost. What slide are you on now? Slide four. Okay. So what we do here really is, as I said, we map a data sources, data fields in the different data sources that we have to our vocabulary that is represented by the semantic model or the ontology. And this is done at two levels. Uh, first of all, uh, data tables are mapped to the concepts and then the data fields are mapped to properties within the concept. Moving fast to slide five, uh, this is what it looks like. This is at the, the concept table concept level. As we can see, on, on the left, we have the tables in the particular data schema. And uh, on the right, we have the concept in, in the in the data model, and then if we dive in, sorry, okay, if we dive in, uh, we see what it looks like uh, when uh, the fields in table, in this case, uh, table alien data, are mapped to the properties of the alien concept in the model. Uh, one thing that we have to note here that uh, pretty much things have to fit together in terms of data types. And if they don't, uh, we have a way around it uh, using uh, transformations and uh, business rules, etc. Uh, 
what this gives us really is a now on, on the in the data model concepts are related to each other as we all know uh, through properties uh, for example allele as you've seen on the right has a property as population that links it to a population concept and the population concept has has uh, properties of its own and maybe links to other other concepts etc and uh, the way that it works is that uh, <coughs> we can map through a little into I mean we see the population ID is a property of the, the table but uh, in order to get to the population we have to kind of go through allele into the population that is related to it. What this gives us is the ability to create queries and I'm on a slide seven by just selecting by just selecting terms from from the ontology and a, it can be in any depth or anything that is associated with a, the, the core concept that I'm using. Namely, if I start with a lil, I can, I can uh, create queries of anything that is associated with a lil. Uh, and a lil is, uh, is associated with genes, a lil is associated with, with uh, populations, and through genes it might be associated to any, anything else. I mean, proteins, expressions, sequences, you name it. <coughs> uh, if we go to slide eight, this is the way that it looks like. Uh, the user can select uh, terms on the left, and there are supposed to be terms that are expressed in a natural language or something close to natural language, or at least something that is familiar, uh, rather than than the database jargon that might be used. And uh, just by selecting them and posting them in the select window, uh, he is creating a query without really any knowledge of how the, the database is structured, what are the relationship between tables, or even of SQL. Uh, on the right-hand side in the window, we have all kinds of operators or different SQL operators that can be used to express or to form the where, the where expression and the selection criteria. Once he press the, finishes the formation of the query, he presses the OK button. We're moving to slide 9. The system generates... Question, do you, do you, have, any, um, Sorry? Spelling, do you have any spelling correction in your queries system? Uh, the if somebody puts in, like you have in the window, homo sapiense, uh, would the system be able to interpret that as homo sapiens? Okay, so uh, the system generates the SQL command that is appropriate to the query that he, he formed by whatever he did in the previous screen. And this then is executed and gets back a data set uh, which whatever, he can analyze, he can apply on it all kind of uh, methods, he can store, he can combine with other data sets or whatever. So what we have done here really is uh, bring the database to the user, and we are talking about uh, many num large number of users and the flexibility to form their own data sets based on any, any assumptions, any hypotheses that they may think of without going through 
the database people to form for them a, the appropriate queries to, to extract data from various databases. Um, a, I'm, I'm in the last slide, slide number 10. A, so uh, what we are doing here, we are presenting a single unified front on vocabulary to any domain data or any platform. I failed to mention that the SQL that is generated is relative to the platform that hosts the data. And if we are using multiple platforms, namely if the data is distributed between uh, different platforms, then uh, we have the option of creating a federated a federated query that distributes SQL uh, queries to the different databases and then combines them. But for that, we need a special execution engine. Uh, it shields the users from the complexity of the database design. I mean, users are relieved from knowing anything about the database. And it gives them the freedom to ask any questions to the extent that things are represented in the database and mapped to the vocabulary. And, uh, and then there is potential of uh, supporting the secondary data processing because uh, through the mapping and everything that, and all the knowledge in Unicorn, we know everything about the data, about the data that was extracted, about description, about relationships. So we might as well create a secondary model that the user then can use for further processing or analysis. And uh, being an ontology and the databases can be expandable without non-intrusively. Uh, we can add resources. We can extend the database, the ontology, to include other subdomains, um, etc. And I think I'm done. Yes. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Roth. Uh, that was very informative. Um, at this point, uh, we went over a bit, but we'll open it up for uh, maybe one, possibly two questions if they're quick. Uh, so the floor is open for questions. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, yes. This is Leo Overs. Um, a lot of times, databases aren't quite uh, as clean as you would like them to be, uh, so maybe not normalized. Uh, you'll find columns, for example, where uh, values in the columns are packed uh, so they may be, in fact, not it's not normalized, but uh, you may have attribute information in terms of a partial string concatenated to an identifier, uh, concatenated to uh, some other product uh, uh, code or additional attributes. Can you handle that with your transformation apparatus? Yes, all of this can be handled. Uh, in this particular project, at least for now, the, all this data that uh, I mentioned, the different data sources, and right now we're talking about about 15 databases. They are brought in into a common database, and all these things are handled because the same data is also queried for structured queries I and mean, through canned queries. So um, this is pretty much take care, taken care of. But uh, yeah, it, we, the transformation uh, capabilities uh, can handle all of this. Actually, if not through simple transformation, uh, we can use a JPython a script to do anything that you wish to do with the data. Thank you. Uh, do you have a question? Uh, Peter Yim, 
uh, I have a question for Dr. Roth. Uh, do I take it uh, to understand that you run a proprietary hub uh, schema where you do a design time mapping of uh, of the schemas from the uh, myriad of databases that are available? Okay. In this particular case, I'm not sure what proprietary is. Yes, we create a joint schema of the different schemas. Uh, the other solution is to use a, a, a federated uh, execution engine like WebSphere, with which we have uh, uh, we have integration. In which case, we'll have we'll, I mean the system will create federated queries that will be distributed to different resources. Thank you. Uh, I don't know how proprietary this is, but, uh, uh, but maybe you can describe how, how open it is uh, from the, the user standpoint. I mean, do the users have access? Access to the schema? Or to 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 let's say uh, to building or, or or making changes to to the hub schema or the hub ontology. Uh, the Uh, well, who are the users? I mean, the users are, okay, we have the users of the entire project, which are, which are researchers out there. They, I, I hope that they don't have any interest in doing this kind of thing. Uh, but uh, we are updating the schema and we are updating the ontology as uh, new things are coming up, new data is added. Uh, the generation of the schema is automatic from the other individual schemas in the data in the data warehouse. Thank you very much uh, for that uh, overview. That was very first two were very very interesting presentations. Uh, keeping you. on target, uh, trying to keep on target. We're still behind now, but uh, we'll now have the third and final uh, presentation for today's session by Adrian Walker, entitled Semantic Interoperability via Business Rules and Open Vocabulary, comma, Executable English. Uh, Adrian, the floor is yours. You have 10 minutes, and then we'll do, uh, uh, I guess after that, uh, Kurt, we can go right into the, uh, the uh, open discussion, uh, because we can then take questions about all three, or, or should we stick with the first five minutes? Well, I'd say if anybody has any questions, clarifying points in his in Adrian's presentation, let's move those to the front, and then we can move it to an open discussion. Okay, great. So, Adrian, you now have the floor. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, this is Adrian Walker. Um, I, I hope you're able to see the slides. There are nine slides online. There's also an abstract, um, which would be good for reading later on. And your slides are um, on the VNC server, too. Okay, terrific. Okay, good. Um, let me take up a point actually from Yitzhak's uh, presentation. Um, uh, in, in, um, towards the end of the presentation, there was a slide of SQL, and next to uh, the SQL on the right uh, were a number of comments in English uh, with the usual slash. Um, this uh, is kind of a sticking point um, for semantics, and, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, so somebody at a meeting in Washington, I think it was one of Leo's uh, co-authors, um, pointed out that um, uh, semantics is one of the words that has the most meanings that we use. Um, and uh, that being the case, we all think it's important, but maybe we all have slightly different ideas of what it is. 
And um, the point we'll try to make in this presentation is that there are at least three kinds of semantics. Maybe they should be called semantics sub-1, sub-2, sub-3. Um, there are the data semantics of XML and RDF and, to some extent, OWL. Um, there is what uh, computational logicians mean by semantics, which is uh, if you've got an inference system, maybe it has a model theory behind it that says what inferences are supposed to be made and what are not supposed to be made. And if you're a linguist, uh, you may be concerned with the meaning of natural language. And um, uh, what we uh, sort of try to do is we try to bring those three kinds of semantics together in one system so that you get um, some coverage of the general fuzzy notion of, of what we mean by semantics or meaning. So uh, to go to slide two now, um, what we have here is a little picture of a retailer and a manufacturer trying to do business. And uh, absent uh, the semantic web or any other kind of web, they may call each other up on the phone and uh, the uh, retailer may say, I'm looking for a PC for gamers. And the manufacturer will say, well, we don't seem to have any of those, but we do have something called a professional desktop. Um, and then they can talk backwards and forwards, and they can negotiate to find out that these are more or less the same thing and that they can do business. So that's sort of person-to-person -person communication. As we move to the sort of picture that uh, Leo was uh, showing us, uh, and we go to the bottom of slide two, we've got the retailer's machine, or machines, on the left, and the manufacturer's system on the right. And they're going to start to try to do business, but they're going to communicate in something like RDF, as, as uh, shown there. And maybe, uh, you know, some uh, months or years from now, they'll be able to conduct a negotiation, perhaps using ontologies, and come up with an agreement. But there's a problem with this picture of the machines coming up with an agreement, which is that uh, they may propose um, some kind of business transaction, um, but uh, they won't be able to explain it um, in any sort of business-level terms uh, to the uh, um, to the retailer or to the manufacturer. So in the middle of the slide there, there's essentially a semantic disconnect between what the machines are doing and what the people think the machines might be doing. Um, URIs don't really solve this problem. URIs are, are pretty arbitrary. Um, uh, they sort of indicate what they mean some of the time, but, uh, but you can't sort of feed some URIs back to business people and say this is why we think you should do business. So moving to slide two, uh, slide three, excuse me. Uh, can everybody hear okay? It's, it's gone very quiet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, good. Um, so on slide three, uh, here's the outline of this little task. Um, a retailer orders computers from the manufacturer. Um, the retailer's terminology, it's a PC for gamers, and the manufacturer's uh, terminology, it's a professional desktop. And um, fortunately, uh, for the sake of this example, they both agree that there's a sort of naming hierarchy. And if you go more abstract, they're both members of the class workstations slash desktops. So now the task is to find uh, uh, to what extent a professional desktop has the requirements for a PC for gamers. And this example is pulled from a, a paper from some, from some folks at NIST, as indicated in, in the footnote there. 
So what we have is a system, and, and by the way, after, um, after the session, I hope you will come to our website and actually run this example. Um, what we have is a system that tries to combine the three kinds of semantics I spoke about. It, it, it combines data semantics, uh, the notion of a, uh, a logical inference machine that is actually backed by um, semantics in the sense of logicians, that there's, there's a model theory that says that it's supposed to infer when it's given a task, and just enough natural language um, to help with the um, problem of uh, not knowing uh, people at the business level or the science level not knowing what the uh, internal constructs in things like OWL and KIF are supposed to mean. So moving to slide four, um, what we have is actually uh, in green there um, something executable. There's a table um, that lists uh, what the retailer knows about, what a retailer's terminology is. There's another table that says what the manufacturer's table uh, terminology is. And at the bottom there, there are two lines and then a dotted line and then another line, which is actually a rule. Um, and it says if the two lines above the dotted line are true, then so is the line below the dotted line. And um, as you'll see if, if you uh, take the invitation at the bottom of the slide, um, this is actually executable stuff, and um, in a puzzling way, it's open vocabulary executable stuff. That is, uh, nobody built a dictionary with retailers and uh, terms and uh, things like that uh, in, in it before uh, actually writing this into a browser and trying to run it. Uh, five minutes. Um, five minutes, thank you. Um, one of the things that we encounter when, when we talk about this uh, system is that um, people say, well, you know, natural language is all very fine, but it's, it's ambiguous. And um, we actually had a little bit of a conversation with somebody on one of the lists uh, this week. Um, and, and the best reply we could think of to the charge that natural language is ambiguous is, well, think of ordinary programming. Think of programming in Java. Um, think of saying natural language is ambiguous, um, so we shouldn't use it. That would mean don't comment your Java program. It will only make it more ambiguous. And that, that's sort of a hopefully a reductio ad absurdum. Um, so the, what we'll try and say is there are ways of using just enough natural language to make things explainable um, uh, when a system does something complicated, particularly a distributed system or a semantic web system depending on ontologies. So moving to uh, slide five, um, if you uh, put in rules and tables like the one on slide, ones on slide four, a few more rules and a few more tables, you can then ask, um, okay, uh, is there a result? Is there a match? Um, and the match will involve reasoning about uh, um, abstract namespaces, about a hierarchy, about a taxonomy, if you will. Is there a match between what the retailer wants and what the manufacturer can supply? And um, this is an answer table, um, and it says, OK, um, there's a pretty good match between PCs for gamers and professional desktops, except that their graphics card isn't, uh, isn't the right size. Um, now, already just in, in this sort of hopefully very simple example, um, the reasoning's got a little bit complex, but if we go to slide six, 
Um, what we'll see is that the system can actually explain step by step what it did. And um, the, the first step in green is, is sort of the, the headline, if you will. It says, okay, there's a match on, on memory. Um, that depended on um, the property size for part memory. Uh, going down uh, to one more step, um, that depended on uh, reasoning with four premises to get a conclusion, which in turn uh, depended on something else, which wound out all the way down to the bottom to nitty-gritty detail that most people wouldn't want to see explained to them. But at least you, you can sort of uh, start with the headlines and go down uh, as, as far as you would like. Um, so uh, that's what you'll see if, if, if you point your browser at the system and, and run it. Um, if we uh, move on to slide seven, um, basically uh, what we've done is take uh, slide two and say, okay, uh, there was a, a kind of semantic disconnect um, between people and machines um, in the middle of slide two. And um, if we kind of shift our representation to a system that uh, uses just enough natural language backed by logic semantics, backed by data semantics, then hopefully we can sort of improve the, the situation to the point where um, uh, we can get uh, English explanations because we put in our, our knowledge in English in the first place. We can get English explanations uh, that uh, bridge this, this semantic gap between, between people and machines. Um, so moving on to slide eight, um, uh, we uh, do seem to need natural language. It's something that uh, is not sort of thought about a lot, uh, to my knowledge, um, in, uh, in, in current ontologies. Um, there's a tendency for ontologies to contain um, machine-readable things that are programmer-readable but are not business-person-readable, um, uh, and then comments which are for people to read. Um, so think of it, if you will, let's just do enough, just enough natural language so that we can compute with the comments um, as well as with the rest of the ontological knowledge. Um, so basically the idea is do three kinds of semantics, do it integrated into one system, um, and uh, in that way bring some accountability and some transparency to the very complicated reasoning uh, that is going to go on as, as systems become more distributed, as, as Leo said. Uh, so I'll stop there. Um, thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Adrian. That was uh, very good as well. Um, I guess first... Uh, before we, before Kurt uh, takes over, moderates the uh, the open session, I just come make a quick call for immediate questions on the material you just heard. Uh, uh, I have a question. Uh, on Adrian, this is Leo. <coughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, yeah. I, I fully um, uh, support um, you know <coughs> use of natural language um, to aid uh, in um, describing uh, underlying logic that's uh, actually being performed uh, by these semantic technologies. Um, but there's also uh, sometimes limitations, which I, I know you know. Uh, so uh, in, in some cases, for example, um, when you have, and I'll just take a simple case, when you have uh, the logic really supports uh, a quantification of various kinds. Mm -hmm. um, 
There's uh, there's a distinction some sometimes, uh, but not always, and sometimes these are equivalent between um, the orderings of quantifiers, right? So when you express that in a natural language, right? You uh, <clears throat> uh, let's say there's a universal. Well, I don't want to get into a complicated example, but uh, when you express it in natural language, um, the natural language uh, typically has is ambiguous, but with a preferred reading for these quantifier uh, scope and ordering situations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but so so it means that uh, you know you have to be very careful when you express um, the, the logical expression in the natural language to make sure that the user uh, picks up on the specific reading. Right. Yeah, I, I think the, the sort of um, short answer to this, and, and, and I hope we get time to discuss it more later, um, Leo, is that um, it's probably unreasonable to expect um, business people or even scientists to write long chains of quantifiers, um, either in logic or in natural language. Um, but what you can do, uh, to some extent, is to unwrap those chains of quantifiers into um, uh, uh, We're losing you. Yeah. Adrian, you're breaking up. Okay. Uh, for all, you substitute um, for all x p of x. Uh, you substitute not there exists an x such that not p of x. And somehow, if you do a lot of unwrapping like that. Um, you go some way towards um, mitigating the difficulty that you described. Mm -hmm. uh, does, does that help? Uh, yes, yes. I, I just think that it, it may be um, uh, ultimately for, uh, for something that's fairly convoluted uh, uh, logically, uh, you, you might have to have a pretty long uh, English description that really um, makes uh, distinctions, uh, the appropriate distinctions to the user. Yeah, and and um, I think that's where um, explanations would come into play. Um, you know, people might not follow the the, the explanation all the way down, um, but if they see the headlines and it looks reasonable with the English with the self-documenting English that's now being executed, um, you have you know more of a chance of getting people to understand correctly what the system has done than if you just wrote it in logic and fed them back the logic. Yes. Okay, thank you. A question, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Um, Pat, this is Pat Cassie. Um, <coughs> in, in your website, I'm curious whether you've had much feedback from uh, people who have tried it out uh, as to uh, queries that have failed and, and have you modified the system based on that? Uh, okay. Um, w one of the aspects of, of these kinds of explanations is that if you get an empty answer to your question, um, the system will also um, go back through the chain of failing things and try to point you to, you know, this, this data item missing or um, this inference didn't go through because uh, this aggregation returned five and, and you wanted two. Okay. Um, so um, have we had feedback? Um, yeah, we had all, all sorts of comments, and particularly because we um, uh, sort of impinge slightly on a very large field of research, which is natural language research or computational natural language. And, and um, what the system does is not at all ambitious in that area. 
Um, it, it tries to uh, just um, do something very minimal but very robust so that the rules are self-documenting. And um, uh, it, it, it's very uh, hard sometimes to make that distinction and say we're not trying to solve the, the general AI problem of natural language understanding, which is, you know, which is research for the next 50 years. Uh, that, that would be fun to do, but, but that's not what we're trying to do. Okay. Does that, does that answer your question? I'm sorry. Well, well then the follow-up question. Um, how, how does your um, system differ from, say, something like attempto-controlled English? Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very good question. It's a question we, we do get asked quite often, um, which is that this is open vocabulary English. It's not controlled. Um, so it's very, very different indeed. And then, you know, the sort of follow-up to the follow-up is, well, how can you possibly get precise natural language semantics um, if you're not controlling the vocabulary? And the answer to that gets a little bit technical, but the, it basically stems from the fact, as we saw in the presentation, that a table of data has to have an English title. And rules that draw on tables of data, maybe a rule draws on two tables of data that both have English, uh, English sentences as headings. And they combine those two to a third sentence, which is the conclusion of the rule, uh, that is also in English. What you've done, basically, is you've made a relation between English sentences. These two sentences combined uh, and did uh, lead to this sentence. Okay, so your semantics kind of builds up like that. Um, and um, another curious co uh, sort of um, property of the whole system is that um, you don't need to build a separate dictionary or grammar. You're sort of computing with strings, but you're doing it in a very careful way so that the semantics is uh, very closely tied, the natural language semantics, to the extent it is there, is very closely tied to the logic, the underlying logic semantics and the logic model theory. Thank you. At this point, I think, um, Kurt, would you like to take over and moderate questions on all of the, uh, the preceding uh, presentations? Sure. Uh, yeah, basically, let's open the floor. Any questions for any of the presenters? Uh, this is Mills Davis. I have one for Leo. Yeah, hi, Mills. Hi there. On page nine, your logic spectrum Classical logic, you know, um, propositional logic to you know higher order logic. Um, I was just sort of curious about what was you know in this progression and what wasn't. Um, it seems to me, for example, that there are a lot of problems in intelligence or uh, life sciences and a bunch of areas where you have to deal with a lot of uh, inherently competing areas of information that may have their own theories behind them and and could be arguably self-consistent uh, in their own areas. But, you know, that's, that's the point, um, uh, we, as we don't get, you know, consistency. So we're, we're talking about reasoning, in some cases, you know, over uncertainty. Uh, we're also looking at things where, in order to arrive at certain, you know, conclusions, you know, we actually have to deal with, you know, different value systems or different bases. Um, are, how do you see these uh, being addressed in the kind of the evolution of the spectrum? Uh, yeah, so you're looking at uh, slide uh, slide nine in the backups, is that right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, this is um, it's actually uh, 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 one of a series I pulled from another briefing, uh, which goes into, uh, tries to expand the, the so-called logic spectrum, which is a portion of the ontology spectrum. 
Um, there, uh, there are certain things that are missing uh, and would be elaborated in uh, follow-on um, slides. So, in other words, uh, there's probabilistic uh, logic, if you will, um, uh, that uh, in, in a sense has to deal uh, or deals with uncertainty. Um, one of the issues here is that, um, uh, you know, uh, on top of all this is, of course, what the content is that's modeled in the language. And as you suggest, you know, uh, you, you might have uh, consistent theories that interact in some way, and uh, they could be, in fact, in different uh, languages. Um, um, but the other dimension is that the data um, that they have is uh, uncertain. Um, there's a requirement for evidential reasoning uh, over that uncertain data. And so uh, one of the issues here is that uh, things such as modal logics, for example, um, can address, uh, let's say, the attitude you have to what you assert. So uh, a belief assertion, for example, uh, in, a, uh, in a symbolic uh, system, uh, a purely symbolic system, you'll have modal operators um, that uh, take a particular stance to the assertion. Um, and, you know, let's say you, know, you have something like uh, John believes that uh, X, uh, that uh, Pete is a terrorist. Okay, well, there might be a degree of belief uh, involved in that, right, or some sort of strength of belief um, that uh, really uh, it, it represents a, it can be represented as a modal, in a modal logic uh, that has these modal operators like belief um, but with extensions, perhaps, to uh, include uncertainty or um, uh, probabilistic uh, assertion, like uh, in you know we we assert that uh, John believes uh, that Pete is a terrorist um, with a strength of assertion of uh, seven out of ten. Right, which really introduces a notion of uncertainty uh, to that. Now, semantic web technology up to this point can address that. Um, uh, prior technology can, uh, at least to a certain extent. Okay. And I guess that's what you're getting at is that. I was just, you know, I'm thinking about just, you know, categories of uh, reasoning, decision support, you know, trade offs, you know, things where. There isn't a. It isn't the existence or non-existence, you know, of, of, of uh, you know, an assertion relative to, you know, the class membership. But it, you actually get into, you know, the inherent conflicts or, you know, networks of, 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 of values, you know, whether it's guilt or innocence. You know, is that just, you know, truth or falsity, or, you know, what else is involved? And I think there's a lot of lot of areas where we're going to want to push the reasoning. And I was just curious, you know, in this spectrum. Uh, you know, uh, what was encompassed, for example, in high-order logic was a question, you know, was another way I could have asked the question. Yeah, yeah, so um, the follow-on slides will have uh, additional polls. So, for example, I have this dotted line on slide 9 that shows uh, substructural logics, uh, which expands really in a different way uh, the whole logic spectrum. So substructural logics, um, ultimately, it means that uh, you can change the way uh, that the logic actually behaves. So, for example, in your normal logic, right, 
it doesn't matter if you say uh, John or uh, Mary versus Mary or John, right? But in a substructural logic, uh, you may not uh, you may not want to have those being the same, right? That disjunction or commutativity or associativity, um, uh, distributivity, if you will, you may not want to have that in your logic, which means that um, you get a lot of different logical behaviors, um, uh, so so that you really expand this whole logic spectrum. Well, the same thing applies uh, when you uh, introduce uh, probabilistic logic. It's another spectrum that's related to this symbolic, uh, you know, formal spectrum, uh, uh, but it has its own uh, way stations. Okay. All right, thanks. Okay, thank you, Mills. Um, I'm going to jump in real quick. I got a question mostly for Adrian and um, Itzhak, although, Leo, you may have something to jump in here as well. I'm uh, sorry, who's speaking? Uh, this is Kurt Conrad, I'm sorry. Uh, okay, Kurt. Um, I'd like, uh, wondering if you got folks could describe some of the organizations that are currently deploying these approaches in their operations. Okay, our stuff is fairly new, so um, basically we make it available um, free on the web um, for shared use, and we find people playing with it a lot. Um, but um, we don't have uh, major engagements with, with large organizations yet. We do find people writing things into the system and running them, um, but by and large we don't know who they are. Okay, thank you. Any talk? Um, you asked about organizations that are using the technology? Yeah. Um, well, a, this project is the first of its kind in the bioinformatics domain. Uh, the rest are mainly financial institutions, banks and insurance companies, and they are using it uh, primarily to manage metadata. Uh, there are some entries uh, into communication, into government, but uh, nothing that's significant. Okay, thank you. I have a question for Yitzhak, if this is a good time. Okay. Yeah. That's Adrian Walker. Um, Yitzhak, I'm looking at you, slide eight. Um, eight. And uh, it has a resulting SQL command. Uh-huh. Eight or nine? Uh, I, I think I maybe um, have your slides numbered differently, but it's the one-headed okay. uh, resulting SQL command. Okay. Okay. Um, would your end users normally see this? Or no. Okay, okay. All right. No. And, and, and a follow-up question. Um, we, we found something interesting. There's an example on our website um, called um, Oil Industry Supply Management. It's been mm -hmm. executable, and, and there's a little paper about it as well. And what we found was we took a fairly simple supply chain um, task um, for the oil industry, and we wrote it as rules, and then we had the rules generate SQL. And mm -hmm. at first we thought that there was something wrong with the system because um, the, the rules were short and very simple, and the you are breaking. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. The um, SQL generated was huge and very complex. Right. Um, and and um, but it did return the right answers, and we checked and we checked, and, and that seemed to be the case. So we seem to be stumbling on something where 
if you generate SQL from ontological or other notations which are rather succinct, there's a big blow up in the SQL generated. And, and we were wondering if, if you'd experienced Yes. I mean, it's, it's a function of the way we map things and, and uh, rather in, in also in the way the database is structured. I mean, how foreign keys are expressed if there are any. Uh, but yeah, sometimes I'm getting uh, we are getting this blow up, uh, blown up SQL okay. commands with uh, repeated uh, repeated blocks that are really the same but for different sections of the database. Okay, okay. So you know th this this raises an interesting question because what seems to be happening in both your system and our system is that we're getting beyond what people could write reliably in SQL. You know, the, the, the generated SQL is is so complex um, that if you asked a program, if you gave a programmer a task in English and said, write SQL for this, um, there would be little hope that, that even a very good programmer could could write it correctly. Uh, yeah, that's true. And and you can't expect uh, people, biologists, there are people. Uh, I want to clarify something about uh, the first question. Uh, the normal mode of Unicorn is uh, to support the data management people. Um, so they may see the, the, the query that is generated and even maybe modify it. Uh, but we are, we are working in different modes where the users are out there. So uh, again, in the normal mode, this is really available in the workbench. In the design and authoring environment, we just opened it in the or opening it in the client, in the web client, so that people have access to this uh, functionality, and they will not see the SQL that is generated. Maybe it, it's a good—I don't know if it's a good idea or a bad idea. Maybe some of them will want to, but uh, it uh, should just give them the data that is, if they. There's any data at the end of the well, to, of the to follow up a little bit, you know, yeah. if that SQL runs and it's very complicated, and I'm a biologist and I don't want to look at it, um, the question is, if I don't, if I'm sort of puzzled by the answer that's returned, don't I then need an explanation, and don't I need an explanation at my biologist level, not at the level of looking at the SQL and see, trying to figure out what it did? Um, that might be the case, and I don't think I have the answer. I mean, we we ran a relatively small scale pilot, and we are integrating this, or rather, we'll start integrating this in the big system sometime in okay. January. So we don't know what the reaction of the community of users will be. Uh -huh. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, okay. I think I heard Dwayne. Dwayne, you have a comment? Yeah, actually I did. It was, um, I, I guess I was making an inference from that last conversation, but it sounded like going from the ontological statement to the SQL statements, it was a, uh, it couldn't be done deterministically. Was that a fair inference? Without what? Uh, it could not be done deterministically, so... Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if you had perhaps uh, seven or eight people uh, making some sort of a ontological statement, and uh, you were migrating those to SQL statements, would all SQL statements be identical? If given that the uh, 
statements were identical. I was just trying to clarify this. Uh, okay. You check first. Yes. Okay. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure what you mean by ontological statement. What we are allowing them to do is simply select the concepts and the properties, or rather the properties from the concept that they want to be, appear in the SQL. Uh, all the rest is determined by the way that the mapping was done and the way that, I mean, mapping between the concepts and mapping from the concepts to the database. And this is deterministic. Okay, and, 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 and I had to say, Jim Walker, in our case also, from a given set of rules, you get only one set of SQL statements. No. Um, but the concern is that the rules might fit on half a page of paper but the SQL statements, if printed out, would be 10 pages, 20 pages. Um, it, it gets very complicated. It, it, uh, so it's deterministic, but there's a, a blow-up in, in apparent uh, or print complexity, if you like. Right. It's possible, and then I'm sure, or rather I think, that there'll be, uh, it will be manifested in performance. Uh, um, and we don't know exactly yet what what uh, will be the behavior of this. But you're right, I and mean, things can explode to be a very long, long sequel. Um, I, I wonder if Susie has... Uh, uh, Susie Stevens from Oracle, are, are you there? I guess she's not here anymore. Uh, it would be interesting to get a comment from the database vendor about this, this phenomenon. Right. Again, as I said, I mean, we don't have yet uh, experience in large scale and maybe the, the secret will be to limit the SQL that, uh, or rather to limit the, the selections that they can perform and to what depth. Because mm -hmm. what is determined is the depth of the query, I mean, how many concepts you involve. Because it's very easy through the links, relations, in the ontology to, to go through many different, to any depth that you want, many different concepts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So this is Leo. So, so part of the problem is that you're going from a, a logical, if you will, conceptual or semantic representation to an expression of it in SQL, which is really structural, right? Right. And it depends on, on the structural connections you already have. So right. that, that expansion could include however many uh, databases and database references um, are <coughs> uh, significantly linked to those uh, the logical or semantic or conceptual representation, right? So you you would tend to expect that in a in a complex query across multiple databases. Right. But even I mean we've seen this on on one database, uh, Leo. Um, it, it, it's really uh, quite a curious phenomenon, and it, it seems to be something to do with um, the SQL structure being a generate everything where and then the restrictions, and it's the restrictions that, that really blow up. Uh, yes, okay, but, uh, but, we, but we also know that um, SQL, uh, in, at least uh, in principle, is a, a relational calculus, right? so yes. it's usually the re relational algebra version of the relational calculus, so uh, given the equivalence, and um, that the relational calculus is really a subset of first-order logic. Yeah. So, so when you have the expansion, uh, it's it's probably because the uh, the well the algebra uh, 
uh, ultimately um, the restrictions apply after, uh, so it's a syntactic um, uh, algebra, uh, relational algebra uh, situation, right, where you, you, you describe the situation and then you find... So, sorry, you broke up there. Can you say that again? You, you describe the situation and then you and then you find the subset of that situation that matches your conditions. Mm -hmm. Which is um, not really relational algebra either. I think it's it's you know it's, I mean there is a formal correspondence, but but probably that's where the blow up comes from, which is that SQL notation is not actually relational algebra notation and certainly not relational calculus. Yeah, and and it largely could depend on. Uh, uh, the uh, relational database vendor um, as to uh, the, the SQL that they they actually uh, allow, right? So, well, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, the, the, a question on deterministic behavior because if this is not supported um, in a manner that's consistent amongst multiple databases, you're not going to have deterministic behavior. And if you're then feeding those results so that uh, result set back an inference engine that is employing some sort of logic like, you know, choose only things that, uh, you know, there is over 100 results and take the top three. If it includes everything, it's going to have a different result than if it excludes a lot of stuff first and only returns 50. Uh, I'm sorry, can you clarify what you mean by deterministic here? I think it's puzzling Itzhak and, and myself also, Adrian. And I, uh, I mean, we're breaking, so I I don't think I got all the questions. Right, so, so please speak louder also when you do that. Okay, okay. So what does deterministic mean in this context, uh, please? So in this, in this context, it means if you take these algorithms and implement them using the same data set, but perhaps in different databases, you're going to come up with exactly the same results. Uh, much the same as, you know, with, with uh, running an XPath statement against XML, if you always find something in the same place. Uh, within the SQL statements, you would always find the same things based on the same queries going in. So, yes, I think, I think both for Yitzhak and for Adrian, the generator is deterministic. Um, if you think about different DBMSs, Oracle versus MySQL, um, they're not quite semantically aligned, and that's a worry, but um, we, we certainly have a way around that. I expect Utsak does as well. <coughs> okay. um, well, uh, as we know, I mean, they're, they're not, as I said, they're not semantically aligned and not using exactly the same. I mean, they are different, using different dialects of SQL. Yep. Uh, and we will uh, actually create a SQL command for the one and for the other. Yes, uh, will they yield the same results? I mean, in, in most cases, I would say yes. I mean, simple queries. Uh, I guess there will be some exotic operators that you would like to use, and uh, they will not come out identical. But, you, you know, here, here's a point, again, where perhaps uh, we should be thinking about uh, biology level or at the business user level because um, Yitzhak and I can do all sorts of ingenious things to SQL and Oracle look exactly the same, but we're human, we're fallible, um, and uh, the, the, the sort of um, where the buck stops is can we explain 
results back um, at, uh, at a sort of useful level uh, for non-technical people so that they can say, yes, I agree with that, or, or, or no, I don't agree with that. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we I think we're closing point. Anybody else have any other questions? Uh, yes, this is uh, Connor Shanky. I have a question for uh, Leo. Uh, Leo, this is uh, uh, with respect to, I think it's your second or third slide, the one that you spent a fair amount of time on. Okay, sure. Yeah, uh, it's probably, uh, hold on one second, I'll bring it back up. Yes, like one there. Okay, so probably the... Um, that's the one right there, yep. Tightness of coupling, semantic explicitness. Right. So the, I, I, I think this is kind of a very uh, uh, in, interesting slide because it seems to kind of, it, it's, a, it's a bit hard to kind of pick it up because there's so many different uh, things on there, but it, it, I, I think one of the things that you're saying is <coughs> that as, as the modularity of, of systems potentially gets smaller and smaller, in other words, as you, you start to go to a, a more service-oriented type of approach and you try and create more granularity, you're, of course, dealing with this n-squared problem where the number of interfaces between systems goes up and, you know, the number of different types of systems that you've got also is going up. Yes. And you've got that performance curve dropping off there. Um, I guess what I was wondering about is one of the... In, 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 in my mind, I can almost see that at some point, though, that we might go through an inflection point because essentially the by modularity, in some respects, means a black box. And so essentially you don't know the, the, the dependencies the, the inside that black box that, that that system might have to some other system. Right. But I guess at some point... If all of the semantics of a system are are essentially rarefied or exposed, so that the the service level really almost goes down to the concepts themselves, so that the dependencies are, are literally at the at the at the concept level instead of being at a modular level, would this not ultimately address performance? and seamlessness and the complexity and everything by basically just, you know, instead of holding on to this, this modular concept to, to just, you know, to go all the way and, and, just, and have this, the, 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 the components all, you know, the concepts being able to essentially understand their, their individual dependencies between each other. Uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure if I uh, understand this, but let me let me feed this back to you. Um, uh, so so ultimately, right? It's it's a matter of uh, how granular do you get, right? So in other words, uh, is it the concept level, or maybe it's a, a triple level, or you know, one specific assertion, right? This holds between that and that. Uh, so. So uh, in, in the service-oriented architectures and even uh, semantic web services, uh, one of the issues is um, it's possible uh, that you uh, compose and orchestrate uh, atomic services. 
So you might have, uh, even semantically, uh, you'll have a, an expression of what a service um, uh, actually uh, is intended to do at a very low level in terms of its concepts, relations, and uh, hopefully uh, task or process uh, representation. Um, when you compose that with something else to form a, a more complicated uh, service, right, you could typically, you can close over that, right, so that now the molecular um, service uh, and its semantics can expose uh, what it does, which is ultimately either a composition uh, of uh, those uh, atomic uh, services uh, or, you know, an expression of that uh, for some uh, external source. So, so that uh, if if that register, that mo that uh, molecular service is registered, right? It could say, well, I, I, you know, um, I'll build a house for you, uh, or I'll go through the whole, whole process of uh, uh, building a house for you, including uh, planning, uh, uh, architectural studies, uh, uh, you know, planning uh, uh, variances. Uh, bidding on lots, uh, you know, uh, uh, taking your specification for what kind of house you want, um, in what location. So when it exposes its own semantics, right, it can it can be at a, a very aggregated or high level level. Uh, so as a black box, it closes off its semantics internally. Um, and interacts with uh, other services and uh, humans at a at a much higher level semantic uh, a much higher semantic level. Um, so, in a sense, it looks like it's uh, if you just observe it as a black box, uh, the semantics is really um, kind of tightly coupled, right? Because uh, you know, it, uh, in the composition of these services. Uh, it's 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 closed off in a closure uh, potential um, perhaps instantiations of those uh, lower level services. Um, I, I don't know if this is kind of what you were trying to get at. Well, it's, it, it is. I mean, I can sort of see where you know what you're describing as the as the kind of the, the molecular level of the of the services. Is what I guess what I would be describing is kind of the the, the the concepts or the assertions or whatever level of that that atomic level of 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 representation. Those you're, you're describing them essentially that they could have that kind of that service type of ability, and that's kind of what I'm talking about. And I can see you know obviously these things would be aggregated together uh, into into complexes so that they can. They can efficiently do their their job, but I guess in some cases, like if you say, for instance, took the idea of this, the idea of, of the the house construction project. Right. Well, one of the molecular services maybe say, for instance, on you know the the twentieth day, we need to pour the concrete for the foundation. Mm -hmm. But what might say, for instance, happen is that what if the the the, the company providing the concrete, you know, it doesn't have any trucks or the driver is sick or something like that. 
And essentially, there is a dependency at a, at a more atomic, or to use your words, at a molecular level, say, for instance, between this, this, this service that's, or this, this thing that's in, inside the complex, which might have dependencies outside of that into everything around it that are, that would, you know, the, on the surface it's not necessarily obvious that there's a dependency to, to other complex things, like say for instance, you know, needing to get... Please note that your conference will expire in 10 minutes. So, I guess the point is that there's, ultimately, there's a lot of potentially, as long as you always have, if you're thinking about the, the, the complex, and it be more of a black box where the where the inner workings are opaque. You ultimately end up always getting into this issue of having to program the dependencies, or for the programmer or the person who knows about that system to be aware of the hidden details and the hidden complexities inside that black box. And that I think ultimately we have this continuing ongoing curve that, you know, it just gets more and more complex and things get worse and worse and worse. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a trade-off, right? So you could expose, and the service-oriented architecture uh, paradigm says expose all those primitives, if you will, or atomic services, right? Uh, in other words, an application today is a bundle of services, but you can't see that. So if you can expose those, right, then uh, a developer or end user, in principle an end user, obviously it's probably first a developer, um, will see those atomic uh, uh, services and compose them for specific purpose. Okay, so it depends on when you draw the circle, right, the closure circle. Uh, it could be drawn because, uh, well, we've made our decision. So, so, so think of a planning I, I, I typically use uh, uh, AI planning um, metaphor here uh, for services. What you want to do is figure out, uh, do the planning first. In other words, I have a goal to achieve, whatever it is. It could be, you know, uh, you know, buying radios from, uh, you know, buying radio parts, or it could be purchasing a house. Um, I decompose that, if you will or I, I search to decompose it into uh, what's the necessary services that go into uh, doing that task, right? And uh, if I'm a developer, I, I say, well, you know, I, I need to do this uh, complicated thing. What's available as components to me? And I look and I and I say, okay, if it's if they're atomic, I compose them. Uh, so you know, it's uh, radio parts. Uh, or computer parts, well, you know, I need uh, CPUs, I need memory, I need whatever they are to configure uh, a cheap computer that I want to manage, you know, I want to bundle together to sell. Uh, uh, it may be the case that um, when you close over, it's, it's more like a notion of a contract, right? So you've agreed uh, that uh, this this orchestration or choreography, this composition of services, sufficiently satisfies your planning needs. Now the next phase is, um, uh, you know, 
scheduling constraints and execution constraints. So in other words, you found the configuration, uh, this manufacturer here with that part and that manufacturer over there with that part. But now uh, you have temporal and distributional constraints, logistic constraints that go into this, right? So I need to have this part. Uh, ultimately, it's a decomposition of the whole thing. I need to have this computer to sell within three weeks. Therefore, I push those constraints back um, on the execution of the plan and say, uh, you know, I need to, in order to execute this uh, within three weeks, uh, this component has to be done uh, by, you know, in the first week. That component in the second week. Okay, those are execution requirements. Now you push that back to scheduling requirements in order to uh, have this component um, uh, completed or executed uh, within one week, you really need to get it uh, the whatever the ingredients are um, and uh, the notification to to uh, execute to that manufacturer three days uh, prior to that uh, uh, week of execution. So. Uh, as you say, there's a lot of uh, constraints uh, on, on each of those. So the planning process, the scheduling process, and the execution. Please note that your conference will expire in five minutes. When you close over, uh, you want to close over for efficiency purposes or because a contract or compact is made, right? You say, okay, uh, this satisfies my planning needs. Now, it also has to satisfy my scheduling and execution needs, which is why a planning paradigm is good because um, you need to push those constraints through and have those promised to be satisfied, right, in an electronic commerce service. Okay. Uh, so so there's, there's granularity issues, but when you close over, right, you, you've kind of agreed that... Um, uh, sociologically or whatever, commercially, that those sat those will be satisfied. Now, when the real world intervenes and and this you know this subcontractor quits, uh, you have to get another contractor. Well, Leo, yeah, yeah, I we're really point we're gonna uh, really sorry to need to wrap up. Yeah, Peter, uh, you want the floor up. for a second, and and then we've got closing from Dwayne. Uh, you, you go ahead. I don't need to do anything further. I think this has been a great session. So um, I, I actually had a, a couple of observations. Number one is there's still a lot of questions about ontologies, what they are, and, and there's still some ambiguity. And that's exactly why I think Mills got in late and missed the announcement that we are going to have uh, Leo Oberst uh, for a full-time two-hour session on January 12 uh, with the specific uh, subject of what is an ontology. So uh, stay tuned and come join us then. The second one is I don't think we delve enough into uh, applications and implementations. I mean, we thanks to Isaac and, and Adrian, I mean, there were great uh, discussions, some on challenges and so on, but we definitely need more ses similar sessions, maybe more case examples. One thing that really uh, drew attention is, I mean, there is still very few 
applications out there, and, and we definitely want to see more. So, so back to you, Kurt. Thank you, Peter. Um, with, with that, sorry to cut you off, Leo, but we're just kind of hitting the wall. Um, I think that's probably about as much summary as we need. I, I too, was really uh, found these to be very, very interesting presentations. Um, I'm, I'm sensing that, yeah, the, the state of application right now is still in really early stages, and so anything we can find out about what people are getting to work is incredibly valuable. Um, I'm a little surprised at, at kind of the counterpoint between the application focus and, and Leo, a lot of the discussion you had, which was a little more on the theory side. Um, I wouldn't have thought those two fit together as well as they did, but I found it would be really interesting moving between those two, two topic areas. Yeah, um, with back, that, back, we are down to about two minutes. Yeah, but Peter here, back to one notion that we had before. I, I believe Dwayne brought that up when we were sort of uh, discussing uh, the possibility, uh, uh, discussing the amendment of our charter. There was a, a question about I mean, what is an, uh, an ontology, what is formal ontology, informal ontology, and so on. At that time, uh, uh, Leo gave a sort of brief definition but promised us a longer version better defined and more recently he has cleared that paper and, and published it uh, into the public I mean, that's a great idea I believe as a community it would be nice if we could maybe through a little bit more discussion adopt at least a community wide definition of uh, what I, I mean I generally would, would go by what uh, Leo and his uh, colleagues have researched into and adopt a few of the major notions. I mean, like I mean, the notions of the upper mid-level uh, superdomain and domain ontologies that chart and in the various uh, definitions of formal, semi-formal, informal ontologies. But, but I would look forward. I mean, if we can have some discussions uh, on the forum on this, leading towards an adoption. Among, uh, within our community uh, into those notions so that we uh, are at least talking about the same thing every time. Thank you. Bye-bye.